Weight loss drugs are here. Are payers ready? Are we ready? I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'm joined today by Tom Albers, Senior Vice President of Strategy at Spirico, a market access marketing agency. The GLP-1 inhibitors show significant weight loss for patients, and we are learning, helping improve patient health. Insurers are pushing back. How should the industry respond? Market access for weight loss drugs next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Tom Albers, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Hey, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Good to be with you. We're talking today about the newest weight loss drugs. Let's just start. I think many of us have heard about Ozempic as being a weight loss drug that's out there and that's new. That's not the only one. Can you just give us a background of what's going on with weight loss drugs in the U.S.? Well, yeah, certainly Ozempic, Wagovi, they're not the only ones. The category has a long history, actually, most of which have failed to measure up to efficacy safety standards. You can go back to the 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm old enough to remember the FenFen debacle of the 90s, which resulted in $13 billion in settlement for the owners of that product. So yeah, the long history of weight loss. I think what we're seeing now in the class that includes Ozempic, Wagovi, Manjaro's included in the list are others. I was just looking this morning, you know, there's 15 products in clinical trial, all within the class of products that we're talking about. Big, big market, big opportunity. Pretty crazy, to be honest with you. Give us an idea of what kind of efficacy we're talking about. Full disclosure, if you go back and listen to the episode, Cancer, the Patient Experience, I talk about the fact that I needed to lose a lot of weight to get to at least try to donate my kidney. That's one of the ways I did it. So I I have some experience with these drugs and just how dramatic the weight loss can be for some patients. I think the clinical trials that have been accomplished and those that are even in the works, we were getting a pre-look at. Efficacy is quite good, excellent. Even the ICER work, you're getting a B plus in efficacy and evidence. And they're not even looking at all of the data. You're talking ability to lose 15, 20% of your body weight from where you start. Efficacy, I think, is looking extremely good in weight loss. This isn't a new molecule that we're talking about either. Products have been studied now for since discovery in the late 80s and early 90s to marketing experience that's going on 15, 20 years in the diabetes space. Obviously, in the weight loss category, we've got a little less experience, but the efficacy, at least, it's, it's game changing. And I think the key opinion leaders in this space are game changers. There's no doubt. This is the GLP-1 class. And as you kind of mentioned, the initial ones the weight loss was at least described as a side effect. It's not the primary indication. The primary indication is diabetes. Exactly. And like many drugs that come to market, you see secondary effects in weight loss in this category was certainly one of them. But now there's tremendous effort going into just getting these products approved for this indication in addition to what they're doing in diabetes management as well. That's changing though. We're not talking about products that have a secondary effect a side effect that's weight loss or, you know, positive secondary effect. But there are now, at least my understanding is Manjaro is now indicated for weight loss specifically. Correct. And I think the future products are probably all going to go down that path as well. Those 15 plus that are in this GLP-1 glucagon receptor type products that act on more than just one of the hormone receptors in diabetes and have a big effect on weight management as well. So I think that one of the stories that we hear in the news about these products is that they're plagued by lack of coverage 
They're not covered by many insurance plans and lack of product. So yes, there was lack of coverage, but you couldn't even get the product sometimes when it was passing insurance. Is that still the state of the state right now or has it moved on? It is interesting. Certainly, I'm not going to speak to supply issues. I think all manufacturers are recognizing what's going on here. I mean, these are big patient populations, big demand. That's not a secret. It's probably safe to say that they're working 24-7 day and night every day of the year to try and meet demand. But coverage is certainly a challenge, and I think that's going to continue to be the challenge You know, you've got a fairly significant Medicare population, which by law is essentially prohibited from getting these products to begin with. So there's no coverage in the Medicare population. And in the commercial space, there's some recent data that suggests somewhere in the 40 percent, 40 to 50 percent range of commercial payers currently are covering these products at some level, which is interesting. There was some survey work that was recently done and the things that bubbled to the top from a reason why employers or payers are not covering products. I don't think it's a big surprise, but these products have been typically categorized as lifestyle drugs. So lifestyle drugs are often excluded from coverage. In the survey that was done with the 49 or so payers that they did talk to, the drugs are too expensive for coverage for all members who need them. This has the potential to be a budget buster. There's a concern about long-term use of these products. And, you know, there's still some safety issue related to that as well, I think, which is driving some of that thinking. And then how long do we need to treat people with these products as well? I think that's one of the questions that remains here also. So payers, I think, have some reason to question and put the typical utilization management and roadblocks in front of these products. There are some that are doing it. There are also some that are pulling coverage as well that had it available previously. So there's lots of churn going on in the payer space with coverage issues. I've actually experienced that a bit. It's covered again in the Cancer the Patient Experience episode of the podcast. I refer you to that if you're listening to this and you haven't heard that or suggested. But for my own experience, discontinued use while I was getting chemo because <laughs> it's going to lose weight on chemo anyway. Right. Yeah. And that, that wasn't exactly my problem. But I can't get prior authorization to get back on. Either the break in use was enough for me to be able to have the insurance company say no, or they just changed their policies while I was out. Yeah, that's actually fairly common what I've seen as well. Nine of 11 large commercial payers, for example, that have been surveyed on their coverage policy for Wagovi have rules that have been more restrictive than the FDA label. Doing things like requiring a BMI, a body mass index greater than 40% and one or more multiple comorbid conditions in order to get access when the label is you've got a BMI of greater than 30% or in some cases even 27% BMI with a comorbid condition contributing as well. So lots of ways that payers are thinking about management of these categories. And honestly, Jeff, I think one of the things in just preparing for this that just kind of jumps off the table is if you look at Medicare as an example and the data they're staring at, Medicare estimates that potentially 30% or greater of their population is faced with weight challenge issues and obesity. And if you just look at even a very small percentage of the eligible population receiving this product, 
10% of that 30%. The budget impact could be potentially 13 to $26 billion, depending on product and dosing and other contributing factors. But, you know, the Medicare budget for Part D was $98 billion in 2021. So you're looking at almost 25% of a budget increasing and being contributed to potentially that analysis was just Wagovi. So one drug could have a dramatic, dramatic impact. So I think you can see why payers are looking at this very, very closely and thinking about the utilization management issues that often surround drugs. So you're an SVP with Spirico, which works with payer marketing. This is your field. You're used to seeing a couple of these things that came up as we discussed. The first is, yes, you think of payers managing to the label. Your indication is going to be a very clearly that they can hold you to that. They're holding me to that. The label isn't indicated for weight loss. Therefore, we're not going to hold you to it. The label is not indicated for prediabetes, but for diabetes. Therefore, we're going to hold you to that. That's normal business. But what you mentioned was kind of beyond that, that payers can look at the clinical trial inclusion and exclusion criteria and use those as a weapon to use against drugs that they want to limit. The payer has to choose to do that. It sounds like the payers are choosing to do that. And not everybody who enters clinical trials is thinking that their exclusion criteria are going to be held against them, but they may be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really kind of interesting when you start to peel that onion to the point that we were just talking about. And here's the question that payers often ask in terms of how big, how many, and how much are the first set of three that they usually ask. And as we talked about earlier, the how big, how many, and how much is astronomical here in terms of what this category has the potential to do. But then when you look at it from the pharmacoeconomic perspective and start to try and sit in their shoes and figure out what story needs to be told, it becomes really, really interesting. And here's how I think about it. What are we really buying for, let's for illustration purposes, call it eleven or $12,000 a year, which is kind of the list price of Wagovi, for example, and other products aren't far behind in terms of cost. But what are you really buying for that eleven to 12000 and what data exists? There's evidence that suggests that certainly it's no secret that obesity and weight contributes to higher costs, but how much higher are they than those that are not obese? Well, CDC data says that, you know, it's probably $12,000 in medical expense annually for those people who are obese versus just slightly under $5,000. But that cost isn't nearly enough to make up that $11,000 difference. Now the evidence is pointing at pretty significant reduction in risk in cardiovascular events, but it won't be zero. And what Govi's already published some really solid evidence on that risk reduction. But what it didn't really tell us is what are the hospitalization events or cost associated with that reduction? What's the mortality reduction related to that? So the data isn't always clear. We have potentially length of therapy issues required to maintain results, as you talked about, and then the safety data as well. It's fairly well known in diabetes, but how well known is it in those without a comorbid condition and what's the long-term use? So you can start to see the kinds of questions that need to be satisfied before we get a full kind of what I would call open access to this product category. It sounds like companies are going to be and continue to be more focused on that because it's easier 
to make a coverage argument if you have data saying, look, we offset these costs. That's true. You offset costs on the medical benefits side. And for those that are listening and are not deeply familiar with the pharmacy benefit versus the medical benefit, the pharmacy benefit being the things you pick up, including Wagovi, including all of these drugs, Ozempic, Manjaro, et cetera, that's on one person's budget. The medical benefit can be on a different actor's budget, a different insurance company. And even if there's perfect offsets, even if the drug, in effect, saves money overall, you still will have pushback, but it's easier to fight. You will still will have pushback from the pharmacy benefit side. These drugs are, right now, bad news for the pharmacy benefit side. They're not going to save on pharmacy costs. The savings are on the medical benefit side, and it's good, perhaps great news for companies that are purely on the medical benefit side. And that distinction is going to be driving a lot of the fights, even if it's proven that the drugs save money to the system overall. Oh, without question, Jeff, I think you've captured that really, really well. That is the battle. That is where I think the companies are investing and need to invest. If you look at clinicaltrial.gov or go through any of the pending work in this category, you'll see that almost all, if not all, of the study work has got the ability to at least capture data that will be able to turn into an economic discussion because that's absolutely going to be necessary here. I have no doubt. There's another point to all this, Tom, that is easily lost. And that is, we don't get new drugs just because they save us money. We don't cure cancer if we can cure cancer because that saves us money from other costs. We don't treat heart disease because it just saves us money from other costs. We don't have anticoagulants because they save us money from strokes, even though they do. We don't do things just because they save us money. We do things because they're the right thing to do medically. And how's that argument working out? I know you mentioned at the beginning that payers may hold or like to hold that it's just lifestyle to have very significant weight loss. But it's not just lifestyle. Is that battle being fought? Or is that one that the industry has more or less ceded to the insurance companies? The industry is, I think, making the case and will continue to make the case. I think people are demanding these products and will continue. I've seen some early results from work that Kaiser Family Foundation has done that show employees overwhelmingly are asking for this product. 80% think that it should be open access. I think that's going to drive a lot of decision making as well. But, you know, we've got to be smart about it. We've got to have the data and the information. And as we alluded to earlier, I think that is where manufacturers know they need to invest in order to not break the bank at the end of the day. That's what this is driving to. What do you think will happen with Medicare? That number that you brought up, perhaps something approaching a quarter of their budget. That is shocking. At least a quarter of the budget on the pharmacy benefit side presumably will save, and the data suggests will save money on the medical benefit side. But that is a budget buster for the pharmacy benefit side. And unlike previous claims of different products being budget busters, I'm thinking the CSK9 inhibitors, Mm -hmm. where (laughs) kind of famously, if I'm remembering correctly, a chief medical officer of a particular insurance company said it's going to cost us $100 billion every year. That did not happen. This seems more real. 
What is Medicare in particular doing about it? Yeah, I do think it's real. I just heard a stat that said these drugs could you know, be $100 billion drugs alone and potentially in the future looking forward. So it's real. Medicare's already obviously opened the door for negotiation. That's happening even as we speak. The first drugs that are going through a true Medicare negotiated price, I think that's probably going to happen in this category up front and not wait for what is inside the law because they're going to have to change the law anyway. And they're already being lobbied by manufacturers and by some advocacy groups to do just that. I think we may see a demonstration project as well to slow this down a little bit and get the data that Medicare might need to make a better informed decision to the point that we were making earlier. That's an option as well. But I think approval is inevitable in this category. I think the advantages that it offers, the demand, I think pricing will get negotiated as well. Even for products in the category, there's room to do that. It's also interesting that if you look from a global market perspective, once again, the U.S. is paying the freight here. You look at France, U.K., and Australia, you know, you're looking at about $100 per month USD cost to these products versus almost the $900 cost that we see here. So there's certainly a lot at play from what I see. I'm curious about that, and I don't know if your expertise is ex-U.S., but I recall that the GLP-1 inhibitors initially, when they went through the free drug pricing in Germany, were told the price they got was much, much less than what they had expected. And they were pulled from the market in Germany and I think more broadly within Europe. Because at the time, the comparators were things like metformin, Mm -hmm. other simple diabetes products. It's a new ballgame now when we're talking about the efficacy we're seeing on the weight loss side. It's not a straight comparison to these other drugs. I'm surprised that the drugs, I'm guessing that those prices you're naming, $100 a month versus you know $1,200 a month, those ones are legacy from when GLP-1 inhibitors were just diabetes drugs, not these drugs known and marketed in some cases like Mancharo on the basis of their weight loss potential. Do we see changes there or is it just too late? They got a price and that's that. Just to answer your question, I don't have a ton of experience XUS, but you're right. I think that is some legacy pricing that we're looking at, but it certainly changes the game. Semaglutide is semaglutide, right? (laughs) I think that's the way it could get looked at in some cases. It's really fascinating to me to think about that. And again, my expertise is not in XUS and global pricing, but I think it does beg the question for those coming to market to obviously think long and hard about what that means from an entry point and an access perspective. Well, back when FenFen was all the rage and then not all the rage because of side effects, back when we first ran into some of these weight loss drugs, was also the time that pharma was still unsure if oncology was a good place to be. And the world changed for both of those. Oncology ended up being one of the major asset classes and drivers of the industry for decades. And it seems as though with weight loss and all of its downstream effects, we're there now with these drugs. Change my mind if I'm saying something different from what you think. No, I absolutely believe you're right. I think with what's coming and what's coming quickly, 
Lily's in the pipeline with a follow on to Manjaro that at least the phase two data is looking excellent, targeting three of the hormones potentially responsible for weight. Uh, still more to come on that, but others that are coming down the pipeline, I think we're there. I think we're not all the way there, but we are well on our way to being there. Well, Tom Albers, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sending Us Health podcast. Appreciate it, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.